Mikvahcalendar.com is your rabbinically approved personal guide to Torah to Mishpacha observance. Times and dates are automatically calculated and explained in English and Hebrew. Anywhere you are, sunrise and sunset are automatically adjusted. Receive email or text messages for important dates and times. May divine blessings of spiritual and material well-being continue to rain down and permeate your marriage and your home. Visit www.mikvahcalendar.com. That's M-I-K-V-A-H-C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the nations. You're on Noahide Nations here on Israel National Radio. I'm your co-host, Ray Patterson, and let's all say hello to my co-host, Adam Penrod. Hey, Ray. How you doing? I'm okay. How you doing, Adam? Uh, you know, I'm doing so well that if I if I were doing any better than this, someone might accuse me of being a divine being of some sort. So. <laughs> Well, you're going to have to go into a different studio for that one. I might. If I start uh, levitating or anything, you'll know what's going on. You won't be getting an answer from me. So, I've already sat in that pew. Oh, I see. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's good to be back with you folks. Uh, we're glad to be here. We've got uh, what we feel is a very interesting guest. Oftentimes, as Noahides and even you know a lot of Jewish people and even Christians, it doesn't matter who you are, we all know the story about Noah. Generally, the story about Noah is what we know from the Torah. Even though it says some very, very critical things, it's very short-lived in uh, Genesis, and uh, I've always wondered why that is. But I also know that the, the Torah is very economical with its use of words. Hashem was very careful in, in what he did. And as a result, this is what we know about Noah from the, the Torah. We do have a gentleman here today, Adam, that is really going outside the box on Noah. And I think it's a fabulous uh, book that he's put together here. The gentleman's name is Wayne Simpson. The book that he's written is actually the English edition of a book last published in 1601, which is entitled Travels of Noah into Europe. Now, the original English text was by Richard Lynch, and this is taken from the writings of Annius of, and I hope I get this right, Viterbo, and ultimately attributed to Barossus of Chaldea. And the name of his new book is a brand new release. It's Noah, Founder of Civilizations, and this is actually the volume one of the Forgotten History series. So it looks like we're going to be getting uh, more books behind this one. But this one uh, seems to be offering a lot about the 350 years that Noah lived after debarking from the ark. wonder if some of that has to do with... Uh uh, anything to, to do with the story of Gilgamesh there, who met a Noah-like figure. Um, just a curiosity. Maybe Wayne can, can talk if this is, you know, explained in there. Because like a lot of the the stories in the Torah, we actually find parallels in other histories of other peoples. So um, I'm actually looking forward to getting into this with, with uh, Wayne. Well, let's go ahead and bring him on. I'm looking to get into this with him as well. Mr. Wayne Simpson. Wayne, are you with us? Yes, I am. 
Well, Thank it, you very much. It's very good to have you here, and uh, welcome aboard the Noahide Nation show. And uh, as I was mentioning to the audience, you've got a, a brand new book out there that's called Noah, Founder of Civilizations. And and I really believe that the book itself is, I mean, it's, to me, it's like a monumental work because so little is truly known about Noah, at least at a minimum to the depths that you've gone into in this books, uh, in this particular book, in the, the, the subsequent 350 years of Noah's life, boy, I'd never even thought about it. I just thought he sat in a tent somewhere for the last 300 because that's, that's kind of the impression we're left with when the tour kind of moves on from him. He goes into to Shem and all this, you know, all that. So as far as we know, you know, Noah's just hanging out someplace. Yeah, so you're... Let, you're... let me say that uh, I believe if Noah had simply walked off the ark, found him a plot of land, planted his vineyard, grew his grapes and made his wine and jacked up his feet to retire, that none of us would be here. <laughs> I know, in other words... You don't think he was the, the guy that came off the ark, set up a lounge chair, and, and, and had a, a glass of wine? I believe I can guarantee that he was. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think uh, uh, it's very, very important early on here in, in this interview to kind of you know set the stage for this book. And you kind of do that rather well in the introduction of the book, Wayne, because you painstakingly elaborate on the sources of this material, which you know we do want to discuss a bit, uh, just well, to you know satisfy the needs of the, the sources and the audience. Okay, where'd you get that and where'd right. you get this? We want everyone to know, and you know what? I want to know myself. Well, and this is, this is important because, you know, there's, there's one thing if you've, if you've uh, taken uh, any history classes or, or whatever in college, one thing you, you, you've been told is, is that there's no uh, evidence for anything in the Torah. There's no evidence for an exodus. There's no evidence for some of these different persons the Torah mentions. And so it sounds like your book actually kind of turns around and says, well, guess what? We do have some evidence. It, it, it definitely does. And, Wayne, before we even get there, I, my, the curiosity is just killing me. What possibly was it that gave you the idea to even study this material out to come up with this book? I mean, wh- why did you go to the great lengths that you did? Well, Ray, um, that's kind of a long story, and I'll make it as quick as I can. But about 40 years ago, I just began to develop a burning interest in ancient history and especially as it pertained to the Bible. I began to read everything I could find. Uh, I built up a pretty nice personal research library. I had uh, Herodotus and Tacitus and Strabo and Xenophon and Josephus and Manetho and all those classical authors in there, and I'm still accumulating those, by the way. But to me, I I love to read those accounts because it was like going back in a time machine and, and reliving those experiences way back then. Uh, it gave me a sense of what it was like to be there. Uh, and it became very clear to me that ancient history was very different than what we seem to imagine. Instinctively, I felt that biblical history was at the very core of it, if we could only understand how. Uh, I especially became interested in the early 70 nations and how they came to be, And it was obvious to me that in the Bible there was a a chronological gap there uh, immediately following the flood until the time of Abraham. There was just virtually nothing said. Um, And I 
uh, for years, I really wanted to know what happened during that period. But uh, I, and I knew the story must be out there somewhere, but I just couldn't find it. It just eluded me. About three years ago, I learned that in the 1700s, there were some multi-volume sets published called Universal Histories. And I acquired some of these and began to read them. And it was amazing to me, the history that they presented was very different than what we read by modern historians. These histories claim to go back to the earliest of times, and in many cases they actually started with biblical personalities, in some cases with Noah or one of his sons. And for, for me this was remarkable because I had never seen this in, in secular writings before, but at that time uh, this was accepted. Well, what? Well, Wayne, just out of curiosity, um, you 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 have you had access to these histories. Why did why did uh, the presentation of history change so drastically? Well, I I'm not sure I can answer that fully, but I have an opinion about it. First of all, uh, in that period of time, there began to be a movement in the universities and seminaries of Europe. Uh, toward rationalism. Um, you, you had the uh, writings of Julius Wellhausen and others who basically were saying you couldn't depend on anything written in ancient times. Uh, and sooner or later, well, they started with the classics, but sooner or later they got back to the Bible itself. And so you had this uh, very... Um, uh, very almost uh, atheistic view of history that was presented, and and even and even the scriptures. Some of the uh, some of the most um, well known um, uh, commentators and, and writers, uh, translators of Bibles, were themselves uh, atheistic in in their mindset. Uh, well, you had that factor that was developing, and so they began to suppress these things. Also, uh, around the time of the Civil War, we had uh, the work of Charles Darwin, which has since been really blown all out of proportion, and that sort of that sort of put the cap on um, anything of a of a uh, a nature of God's existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, that's how I believe uh, these things came to be suppressed. There was also another factor in Annie's case. Um, and we haven't even said who Annius was right now, but I, I'll go ahead and tell you. Uh, <clears throat> Annius was a Dominican friar and a scholar. He was a friend of Pope Alexander and Pope Sixtus. Uh, Alexander gave him the title of the Master of the Sacred Place, so he was well respected. He especially studied Etruscan history and claimed to be able to read and speak the Etruscan language of northern Italy. And during his lifetime, he was well-respected. And when he writ, wrote his book in 1498, he fostered great interest in the Europeans because um, it established a lineal connection between their nations uh, back to the city of Troy and then ultimately back to Noah. And uh, so he was very popular. Uh, and as long as he lived, no one challenged his work. But he died only four years later. And after his death, critics began to 
accuse him of fraud. Uh, they claimed he simply made it all up. Uh, and sadly, uh, they couldn't find his sources. And sadder uh, still, he wasn't around to defend himself. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so they went out ultimately, but it, it took a while. Um, his work was mired in controversy, but it continued to be popular for decades after that. Other writers continued to cite his book, and uh, his book itself was republished twice during that period. But eventually the critics did one out, and uh, Annius' work sort of disappeared into obscurity. Okay, so that's kind of where this journey starts then, is with Annius. And then you, you'd mentioned in the introduction that uh, it was ultimately attributed to Barossus of Chaldea. Now, can, can you tell us who Barossus was? Yes, uh, Annius said that his information came from Barossus, and that too has come under controversy. But Barossus uh, was a 3rd century BCE historian and a Chaldean priest. This was about the time of Alexander the Great. And his work hasn't survived, but fragments of it have in the quotes from other works, such as Josephus and Eusebius and Senselus and, and many others. Um, so so that's, that is where Aeneas claims his major source. Um, I think that he also was very well educated in in the world of uh, traditional, uh, what we would call normative history, and also in mythology. And he was able to draw quite successfully, in my opinion, in those fields and make um, make connections and and establish some histories which were otherwise not unknown to us. Now, you you said that. Um, uh, uh that he drew from Barossus, but then at the same time that uh, Aeneas uh, was under controversy because nobody could find their, his sources. So I guess what would, what I would wonder about is is that you know he he claimed that he was basing his work on uh, the work of Barossus, but nobody else could find it. I mean, I mean, surely this he must have gotten it from like you said. Josephus and, and, and Eusebius and, and all these other people, or what, did he claim to have a unique source for this history? Well, that isn't clear to me. Um, actually, as I read the text of Barossus, uh, he only mentions, I mean, I'm sorry, as I read the text of Annius, mm -hmm. he only mentions Barossus a few times. Um, uh, most of his other uh, um, tenets... Um, are not um, identified as coming from anybody in particular. I see. Um, well, well, go ahead. Well, if you know, to, it would seem to me with Josephus receiving such a claim and is is considered a primary source in in, in many venues. If he's got it in his books, then you would have to think that the material did exist fact that there's no confirmation uh you know i don't have confirmation that there's air other than i'm sitting here breathing it yeah. but josephus is a, a a quoted source and if he's quoting barosis then that you know seems to stand in terms of uh, a recognizable and credible source w wouldn't you agree uh yes i would um uh it was, was obvious that uh, barosis was highly respected even though he was a uh 
a, a Chaldean priest, a, a, a pagan. Um, uh, but that was the case with many historians as well. And it's not surprising that uh, parts or all of someone, some famous mis historian from that era, disappear, or parts of it disappear, uh, because you have that uh, situation uh, all over the spectrum. Well, I know that uh, the folks have heard uh, about a place called the Vatican, and I wonder if they're stored somewhere in the basement there. <laughs> uh, I have wondered that very thing. Um, it, it is uh, certainly a possibility that the uh, church could have found uh, his work threatening, threatening in some way. And after all, he lived only uh, about 60 miles north of the Vatican. Uh, he was right under their thumb. And uh, He being, uh, you talking about Barossus? Uh, no, Anius. Anius, okay. And, and let me go on to say, too, that uh, uh, there's, there's one more little bit to this story. Um, uh, even after Barossus' work came to be under fire, uh, in 1601, Richard Lynch of London released his English edition based on Anius' work. And so, uh, and, and he was very mindful of the fact that uh, Annius had such critics, so he went to pains to uh, reinforce some of his assertions from established classical authors, and those appear in my book. In fact, uh. it, um, what I what I republished was Richard Lynch's version of the book because it was a little more extensive. Right. So that, there you have the history of how it came about. Interesting. Okay. Now, you, one, one other person that you did mention, the Raphael Hollinshead. Uh, can you share a just a little bit about him with us, and then we can start getting into the you know, subsequent 350 years to uh, uh, Noah debarking from the Ark? Uh, okay. Raphael Hollinshead uh, was an Englishman who lived in that same general period, and he too was fascinated by Annius' work, and he wrote a, um, a book called The Chronicles of England, and he started out with the work of Annius and developed it particularly in respect to England itself, England and Scotland and Ireland. So um, I have not drawn from his book because it was kind of focused on just that particular aspect. Okay, he's uh, a small player in all of this then. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, as I mentioned to the audience, uh, the uh, book itself uh, offers a great deal of outside-the-box thinking, and, and we really wanted to confirm you know, some of these sources and the credibility uh, of these sources, and I think to some degree we have, particularly with Josephus. Now, as far as the uh, 350 years, can you share a little bit with us, uh, just generally at this point, uh, about Noah's 350 years? Okay. Um, uh, from what we know or what we are told by Annius and Richard Lynch and presumably Barossus, um, we put together a picture which uh, I like to call, as opposed to the biblical uh uh, tradition of Noah. This is the secular tradition of Noah because it comes from sources outside the Bible. 
But uh, fundamentally, the account says that for the first hundred years, they were just simply trying to survive. They were trying to get their act together. Uh, they were trying to uh, get a plan for how it was they were going to actually conquer the world. Uh, they were uh, uh, they were just doing very basic things, and they had to huddle together for mutual support. Uh, now, I did some estimation about the population that could possibly have been in that period, and um, <clears throat> uh, in thinking about that, I, I realized that God had given them a command to go to, to multiply and replenish the earth. And I don't think they had to be told twice about that uh, because they knew that if they didn't get their numbers up, it wouldn't happen. And so uh, I believe there was a real baby boom that took place at that time. Uh, I think they were having children just as fast as they possibly could. Um, and uh, female physiology is usually such that that uh, the most you can expect to have, and an average would be a child or a birth every two years. You know, you might have multiple births, and of course uh, there would probably be some deaths uh, among the children, uh, or maybe not. Um, but well, there's also that, also the possibility of twins and triplets and. Uh, yes, you know, possibly yes. Hashem helped greatly uh, in, in yes, his task. there is a tradition that says that uh, every birth in that period was twins and that there was one female and one male. I did not, however, take that into my consideration of the population. Uh, there are many ways you could have done that, and you come out with vastly different figures. Uh, but all I wanted to get was a rough idea of what, what the possibilities were. And I determined that in the end of the first generation, year 30 of the flood, uh, you would probably have a population of 60 people. Uh, and most of those would be children. And at the end of the second generation, age 60, uh, year 60 of the flood, I mean, uh, you could have presumably about 450 people populating the earth. And then by age, or year 90, you would have uh, perhaps 4,500 people populating the world. And then it goes on from there. And, and you see, as time goes by, the population skyrockets. Uh, and I like to pose the question, if you were Noah and you had the charge of populating the earth and sending out colonies and, and creating nations, when would you first do that? You certainly wouldn't do it when there were only 60 people and most of them kids, and I think it would be foolhardy to do it if there were only 450 people. You know, well, that's, that's a very interesting, because the, the thing that popped into my head as you were saying that was the Tower of Babel. And, and the reason why that's kind of uh, interesting is because, you know, people had congregated in one area and God had to kick them out, get them, get them moving in other parts of the earth. But. Well, we're coming up on a, a, a break here, and uh, this is an excellent question you're asking, Wayne. So I think we'll go ahead, and after the break, we'll allow you to go ahead and answer that for us. But in the meantime, uh, folks, we're going to take the break, and uh, hope you stick around, and we'll see you on the other side.
If you love Israel and you're coming to the Holy Land, you need Israel's best tour guide. See Israel like you've never seen it before. Mayor Eisenman will take you around the country for an educational and fun experience. Each tourist gets a personally designed tour based on his preferences. The land of the Bible, the land of the Tanakh, comes alive in the hands of an energetic and experienced tour guide. Visit IsraelByMayor.com. That's IsraelByMayor, M-E-I-R, or email him directly at IsraelByMayor at gmail.com. There is a famous segula that a person who goes to the Western Wall for 40 consecutive days to pray for one request will have that request answered. There is also a long-standing tradition of giving charity to have a pious Jew pray in your place since not everyone is able to make such a journey. Western Wall Prayers, 40 Days of Prayer for You at the Kotel is a project of Kolel Tfilat Moshe. Visit westernwallprayers.org. That's westernwallprayers.org. Welcome back, everybody. We're glad you stuck around to the other side, uh, the second half of the Noahide Nation show. And we've been talking with Wayne Simpson, author of Noah, founder of civilizations. And prior to the break, uh, he was basically asking the question, at what point do you start sending all these people out to start begin to create these civilizations? You know, what number of population and when would that have occurred? So, Wayne, why don't you jump in here? Because I don't know the answer to that. You're going to have to help us out. Okay, well, nobody actually knew the answer to that until this text was written. The text itself says Noah set out the first colonies in the 100th year after the flood. And according to my own personal estimates, uh, I believe there would have been a population around 10,000 people at that time. And that would just make a lot of sense. Uh, you, you wouldn't want to do that too early because there were a lot of dangers and a lot of problems. So I, I fully concur that that was the logical time to do it. So the first nations began to slowly take shape uh, in the years, the, the latter 200 years of Noah's life. And he was very much involved in that process. You know, long before the flood, Noah had accomplished an enormous logistical challenge. He had to master all kinds of skills. He had to, to learn astronomy and mathematics and weather and all the sciences of the day. Presumably he had to master agriculture. That would have been very important. And, and the political implications that he would face would be daunting, too. As the patriarch and king of the whole world, he had to deal very fairly with all of his children. He couldn't afford to uh, prefer one over the other. And he had to deal wisely and diplomatically and in later times as, as the nations developed. And he had to know how to handle conflict and rebellion. And so his job uh, would be similar to the job of any king, any ruler, any nation. Um, you had to be able to deal with the problems of people. And, of course, God gave them this basic code of law, these seven broad principles that uh, came to be known as the Seven Laws of Noah, and they were intended to form the foundation of the respective systems of law for each society. And so finally, when the time was right, Noah began to install kings and establish and define 
nations. He established nations such as France and Spain and Italy and Germany in Europe, and this book focuses on Europe, uh, but you can be sure that Noah is doing the same kind of work in the rest of the world as well. So that, in a nutshell, is what the book is about. It's about those early beginnings and the societies that separately developed after that. Now, as far as the three sons that we are certain of that are mentioned in Torah, can you tell us, I'm sure as, you know, those three sons were probably the main people who went out and started, uh, at least in the leadership role of these other uh, what would it be, continents, or, uh, you know, I'm not even sure what you would call it, but uh, how did he divide, how did Noah divide this up uh, between the three sons? Okay, we have a very good historical account of how that happened in the Book of Jubilees. And so I'll just go through that with you. This is very powerful, in my opinion. Okay. <clears throat> Noah called his sons and drew nigh to him, they and their children, and they divided the earth by lots which is three, one, three sons were to take in possession, and they reached forth their hands and took the writing out of the bosom of Noah, their father. Now, he's describing a land lottery. As I said, he couldn't afford to play favorites at all. This had to be totally a matter of chance, or another way of looking at that is it was God's choice. But they, they, he put three lots containing the names of the three basic continents and each of the sons drew what they were to inherit. And so they all agreed with this. They said, this is how it will be, and they took an oath, and they said, any of our people who violate this and who take the land of another will be cursed. Well, wouldn't you know, no sooner had he made this plan before it could ever be implemented, there were certain unscrupulous individuals who uh, went out and it says that the children of Noah began to divide the earth among themselves, and they divided it secretly among themselves. <laughs> so uh, right away the plan was in trouble. And it goes further to describe that Ham saw the land of Lebanon to the river of Egypt. That it, I'm sorry, I'll start over. It was Canaan who saw the land of Lebanon to the river of Egypt, that it was very good. So he dwelt in the land of Lebanon. And Canaan was a descendant of Ham. That's right. Okay. Canaan was Ham's son. Right, okay. And, and he took this land, which was in, in the land uh, of Shem, Shem, Shem's territory. Uh, and this wasn't the first time that had happened, by the way, because uh, we know that uh, Nimrod went down in the valley of Shinar and started to build his nation of Babylon. And that was in Ham's or in Shem's territory. But it says, after this happened, Ham and Cush and Mitzram, his kinsmen, came to Canaan, and they said, You have settled in a land that's not yours, and it did not fall to us by lot. Don't do this, for if you do, you and your sons will fall in the land and be accursed through sedition. You shall be rooted out forever. Dwell not in the dwelling of Shem, for to Shem and his sons did it fall by lot. He said, You are cursed by the oath by which we bound ourselves in the presence of the holy judge and in the presence of Noah our father. But he did not hearken, and he dwelt in the land of Lebanon from Hamath to the entering of Egypt, he and his sons until this day. And for this reason the land is named Canaan. 
So if you have ever wondered how it could have been fair and just for God to allow Israel to come in and uproot Canaan from the land that they had occupied for hundreds of years, there's your answer. They didn't own the land. They never owned the land. Mm-hmm. They were they were uh, squatters and trespassers. They were thieves. So when the time came, they were driven out. Sounds like a and similar this, situation we've got going on today. It definitely has a bearing on that. Uh, it's just a little more confusing today, that's all. Right. Well, I'm curious. You, you've got s- several details in here that when I read them, I was just stunned uh, a- after reading it. For example, you state that Noah was a giant which presumably his sons would have been giants also, and I would have to believe that the women that they married were probably giants, or at least close to giants. How do you how do you come up with this? Well, well, for, well, first off, what do we mean here by giant? Are we talking about someone who's thirty feet tall, or are we talking about somebody who's like you know eight foot seven, someone who's six foot five? I mean, you know, during the medieval period, you know, most knights were you know just over five feet tall, you know, so. Uh, what, what are we saying? When we say giant, what do we mean here? Well, uh, that's kind of an open question because there are uh, historical traditions that go back into various cultures uh, that seem to have various interpretations of that. Uh, in, in fact, there's one episode which is quoted in this book itself that was reported by Boccaccio, an Italian, back in the 13th century or so. Uh, he cl- claims that the people of Sicily found a corpse, uh, a tomb or a grave of a of a an enormous man. He they said this man was 200 feet tall, and that he had in his hand what looked like the trunk of a tree, which was tipped with a lead spear point. You know that seems a little extreme to me, but there are other such reports as that. However, most of what we have historically seems to have been giants in the range of uh, 8 to 12 feet or so. And so I, that, I believe, is what we're working with. Uh, but there, there is some conjecture there. Well, right. that's, that's a pretty good size. And, and back uh, yes. in that day... Uh, is... they, they, they play some pretty good basketball, I think. Uh, yes, I believe they could have. However, most of them uh, turned out in time to be the descendants of Ham, and uh, they didn't care about basketball. What they cared about was world conquest. That was Ham's guiding principle all along. He wanted to rule the world. He wanted Noah's job. Uh, all, all of his efforts, all of his life were focused in that direction. He seemed to have taught that philosophy to his descendants as well. And so for generations, this was a huge problem. In regard to Noah being a giant... The only authority I have is in this book itself. This is Annius' claim. I believe I have encountered that somewhere in Hebrew literature, too, but I've not been able to chase that down again, so I can't cite that. What Annius says was that Ham and Shem specifically were giants. He doesn't say about Ham and Japheth, so perhaps they weren't. Uh, I think this was a mix, and in my opinion, of course we know where the giants came from, they, uh, they were the product of the uh, unions of uh, the sons of Elohim and, and women, human women, and, and the, the progeny was giants. And the problem was that they were not only giants, but they were evil giants because they 
practiced evil. So these are the Nephilim that you're referring the to. The Nephilim, yes. Right, okay. It, it's inter- I, want to, it's, I want to emphasize that point. A giant uh, from this genetic pool would not necessarily have had to be evil unless he chose to be evil. Right. Once they were born of human women, uh, they were fully 100% human. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't think they lack free moral agency at all. Uh, they just simply, for the most part, chose to be evil. But Noah was different, and, and so that's the important factor here. After the flood, of course, uh, given this, uh, this situation, the population that sprang from them uh, would have probably been a mix of giants. Well, you, giants. You, you can see, you can have a family who might have a, you know, I guess you could say a giant in the family, but everybody else be more average height. Mm-hmm. It seems to be more of a, uh, a rarity. Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I have some photos of people in modern times who are literally giants, or who were, most of them lived in, uh, in the early parts of the 19th century, or 1900s. Uh, the pictures are fascinating. Some of those people are uh, very nice-looking people, but they're, they're pretty tall, <laughs> and they just tower over normal humans. And in some cases, they were a kind of an anomaly in the family. I have one picture of a man and his brother, a giant called Hugo from uh, France. His brother, Antoine, and both of them were uh, giants. It's my opinion that the giantism was a, uh, sprung from a uh, recessive gene, and so that given time and a few generations, the giant stock would probably have disappeared on its own and only show up once in a while, like it does today. It's interesting that, um, because there is a, a question that arises in uh, in the Torah when it talks about the, the Nephilim, that they were, it says, it says they, they were in those days and also later, right? So That's right. So, so, they were, so they were in the days before the flood, and they were also in the days after the flood. So, exactly. you know, the, the question you always come with, well, how did the, the giants survive? Now, there is the story in the Midrash of Og, king of Bashan, who uh, who had amazing grip strength because he jumped on the, the back of the ark and held on for 40 days and 40 nights, or made his own little ark, you know, depending on which, which version you want to go with. But um, it's an interesting question. I mean, these, these I mean, unless it's like a recessive gene, which, which seems to make sense, given that, uh, you know, Noah uh, married uh, a, a daughter of Cain, and presumably they came from this because the uh, I think there's even a tradition that the daughters of men that the Torah mentions there, they were actually um, female descendants of Cain. Well, it's also interesting because this would help to better explain and make it more understandable and reasonable why Hashem felt Noah was so perfect in his generation. If he was part of this crew of Nephilim who were these bad, nasty, evil giants... But he wasn't. I mean, think of the environment that he had to do battle with to be a righteous individual, even marginally. Uh, I mean, it's surprising that he actually survived it. And now it makes a lot more sense to me why it was put in the Torah, because obviously, again, the Torah is economic in its use of words, and yet it still describes Noah as being perfect in his generation and having found favor in the eyes of Hashem. And that could help explain a little bit better. Let me address the story of Og. It is a story that appears in several uh, different versions. 
uh, and it's kind of on the fringes of Hebrew tradition. Once again, it's necessary to make sense, to, to take a little speculation to make sense of this. And there is a way that this could be true without contradicting Torah. And, and so here's my take on that. Ham's wife was said by some sources to have been a pagan priestess. And it said, in fact, she was instrumental in the liaisons before the flood between these women and the angelic beings. When she entered the ark, she was pregnant, but not with Ham's child. She was pregnant with the child of one of the watchers, one of the sons of Elohim. And when Ham discovered this, he wasn't angry at all. He was glad because it provided a means for him to introduce giantism into his family. And, and he was already hatching plans about he, how he was going to dominate the world. So to hide the fact that this was a child of one of the, uh, one of the watchers, uh, he began to have intercourse with his wife, even though it was forbidden during the duration of the flood. And in this way, he could pretend that the child was his. The story is that Og was that child. So he didn't, um, by in, in this version, he didn't uh, come onto the ark uh, at the time of the, uh, the beginning of the flood. He was born on the ark. Some even say that Ham's wife became pregnant while she was on the ark again by the watchers. And the second child born after the flood was Sihor, giant, also mentioned in the Bible. Um, so this is largely speculative, but uh, in, in this arena, we kind of have to be speculative sometimes. Sihor or Sihon? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. I, I was trying to, Sihor, I don't think I've heard of, Sihor or Sihon? Uh, I, he is one of the uh, other giants who was um, uh, in Canaan, uh, and had to be unseated by Joshua. Oh, that was Sihon, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe I have the wrong, maybe I have the name wrong. Oh, okay. Just want to be sure. <laughs> um, okay, well, intro, that's, that's an interesting, uh, you know, idea. Um, you know, Midrash is, you know, you know, I was told once by a rabbi, you know, you know, a, a person who doesn't believe all the midrashes are true. Is uh, you know he's not really he's not really following the Torah. A person who believes all of the all the midrashes are true, however, is a fool. And so the idea here is that actually you have to understand how to take a midrash, whether you're supposed to understand it literally or you're supposed to understand it as a metaphor. And and, and, you, and this is kind of the struggle sometimes. What you know is is this are we are we looking at this midrash as history because. There are midrashes that you know give us history, um, or is this meant more to give us uh, just kind of an idea of, uh, of some moral lesson or, or hinting at something else? So uh, it's this is a this is a very interesting uh, uh, subject you bring up here. Well, I have to agree with that. Um, uh, there are really things that you read in the midrash which uh, do challenge your imagination, right? And, and you sometimes have to parse. Well, what is literally true and what is figuratively true? Right. Uh, let me add that uh, there's a, an, another little tag to this story about. Okay, this man. Re real quick, Wayne, we're running out of time here. Okay, Ham chose to try to emphasize the 
the birth of the giants, since they would probably uh, fade out in the other the other families, Ham chose to adopt incestuous marriages between brothers and sisters and even sons and mothers to do line breeding to concentrate those giant genes so that most of his children would be giants. And this was the practice among the pharaohs for many generations. We know that. Um, so this is why so many of those giants who became later uh, important later in the book, and they actually tried, and they actually did for a while, conquer the civilization. Um, it gave him a military advantage. That uh, makes a whole lot of sense, too. And that your book is just loaded with all kinds of uh, information uh, such as this. Uh, you know, it never would have occurred to me that Noah was a giant, and yet there it is. And it's very, very plausible going through the information that you provided. Uh, the civilizations, the, the, the countries that were started by Noah through his sons. And Noah journeyed to these uh, places uh, regularly to make sure that everything was running smoothly. And this is how he kept finding out that Ham was into all kinds of dirty stuff. So, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and Ham, you even mentioned, is probably uh, the father of Zoroasterism, which, as we all know, is a very, very ancient pagan religion. Well, you know, I don't quite know how to answer that. Uh, <laughs> I think the name is really coincidental in this in this regard. Oh, you do? Okay. I thought Zoroaster it... lived in the 6th uh, century BCE. Right. Ham, of course, was much earlier than that. Uh, and, and the lives of the two are hardly anything alike. But as we... So I think that is a co- coincidental relationship. But as we know, the majority of religions spawn from a previous religion, a previously known religion. And usually somebody hijacks it or hijacks parts of it and alters it to uh, meet their needs, and it becomes a new religion. But you could be right, too. I mean, I'm, I was just thinking as I was reading that that, it, that it's a, a possibility that this uh, Zoroasterism uh, was a form uh, that came out of what uh, Ham was doing way back when. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because he was married to uh, a, a pagan. I mean, they were pagans, let's face it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, and, and their influence persists to this very day. Absolutely. And in some cases, uh, uh, seem to dominate, which is uh, a very scary thought. Yes. But, Wayne, listen, it has been wonderful having you uh, with us. And I highly recommend going out and getting this book because it will give you much, much more information about Noah, about his three sons, about uh, the things that Noah was involved with as far as getting civilizations going, how he got them going, who he got them going with. It's just a a fabulous book that really tells a story uh, about a man who, well, Quite frankly, he was the savior of all of mankind, quite literally, through the grace and mercy of Hashem. So I highly recommend it. The book, again, is called Noah, the Founder of Civilizations. Wayne, thanks so much. It's great having you. Happy to be here. And, folks, to find out more about Wayne's book and how you can go ahead and purchase it, you can visit him at www.com. Jasher, J-A-S-H-E-R dot com. And we appreciate you being here with us today. You all take care. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, 
Everyone, please look to the heavens for your help from Hashem, because my friends, I assure you, He's always looking out for you. Now you can travel to and from Israel like a VIP passenger. Introducing the Ultimate Airport Experience by Menashe Sofer's Airport Service. The VIP Meet and Assist Shuttle guarantees a completely stress-free traveling experience. It's like traveling business class. You need Menashe Sofer online at msoferairport.com. Tell them you heard it on Israel National Radio. msoferairport.com. Kamoshavav Wild Rose announces that the price of our Machach program for 10th graders is now subsidized and reduced to only $2,000 for four weeks, from July 22nd to August 18th. Now a great program has become even more attractive. If you're looking for a summer experience for your child, building friendships, learning and having fun with campers from across the United States, call us at 847-674-9733 or visit www.moshavawildrose.org. 